While Bitcoin does not litigate the ethics of hydrocarbon production, it is not controversial to point out that the dollar, in that it is sustained by the continuation of the U.S. military-industrial complex, the single largest consumer of oil in the world, carries an incomparably greater carbon footprint than the Bitcoin network will ever begin to approach. All this while generating abhorrent negative externalities, among which are the countless lives lost to conflict and the inherently political nature of money controlled by a single geopolitical hegemon. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, your host, and the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. With um, with all the the recurrent rise of all the ESG nonsense going around with Bitcoin, maybe maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just like it's constantly popping up in my feed. But uh, and also, actually, because I think this will be this will be partnered well with uh, Nick Carter's annotated version of the Climate Report, which is really entertaining. Um, it's a it's long, so I don't really don't know when I'm gonna be able to get to it, like actually complete. Um, but I'm hoping I'm hoping to be able to do that one on the show. So we'll see. But I thought this piece this piece was shared in the audio notes by BTK, um, who uh, also uh, put me on another article that I read on the show not too long ago. Um, shout out, by the way, BTK, what's up, man? Uh, and this is on Bitcoin Magazine. This one's by Spencer Nichols, who really demolishes a handful of the most prominent and astonishingly ignorant takes on Bitcoin and energy. And it's so crazy to me to see how unobjective and how genuinely incompetent their stand, like their quote-unquote research is you know and increasingly it seems like that the notion of trying to find truthful information or holding or sharing something that is actually accurate isn't even part of their filtering process it really seems like the and i guess this is kind of broadly against mainstream media here like i i, I find it very difficult to find an exception to this rule that there are two filters that it's the question of, does it come from a significant enough sounding authority? And does it push the opinion which they already hold on the subject? Like, it's like those are the only two conditions. And it's almost as if it should be taken as default, as necessarily true, if it passes those two tests. And that now everything else has to essentially prove the negative. That that's not true, and that must be true by default unless you can prove something else. And even though they hold what they say under no scrutiny whatsoever, anything that even slightly contradicts it or suggests that it isn't wholly and completely to be blindly listened to should be both ridiculed and held to an absurd standard and rejected outright on the face that it isn't from their chosen authority. And I want, you to, I want you to think about that. 
when you're listening to this piece, when you listen to how pathetic the arguments are, when you actually hold them up against easily verifiable reality, don't forget that these are considered trusted experts on climate and policy. Don't let yourself be a victim of the Gelman effect. That you have amnesia when you turn to the next issue and forget that this is their level of discourse. These claims are the ones that they are willing to push despite their absurd detachment from anything even resembling reality. And they aren't even embarrassed by it. What are they willing to say on any other issue? The agendas, to defend the agendas that they want to see happen. They prove over and over that they don't care whether it's true. And they don't even walk it back after they're proven wrong. They keep repeating it. Anyway, I'm getting way, way ahead of myself. Um, can't do the guy's take first. That's weird. Um, so <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and get into this piece by Spencer. Um, and uh, really quick, I just want to thank our sponsors. First off, it's CoinKite, the makers of the cold card, the tap signer, the open dime, the block clock, mini and micro, the stats card. I mean, just so many amazing Bitcoin hardware and security products. Um, and they've been bit Bitcoin only forever. And they've been around for one of the longest running and most successful Bitcoin hardware wallet makers in the space. CoinKite, you have got to check them out if you do not have a cold card. It is a super versatile hardware wallet, and you can get 5% off with code BitcoinAudible. And then to pick up some of that sweet, sweet Bitcoin that you're going to put on your cold card, you're going to use Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin has an automatic savings plan with automatic withdrawals directly to your keys. Um, they've got an amazing Pacific Bitcoin conference that is coming up very, very soon. Um, you can get 20% off of that with code GUYS, G-U-Y-S. And also, if you haven't checked out the app, Swan Bitcoin just released their app not too long ago. If you aren't using it, it's a super simple interface and just way to interact with your Swan account and buy Bitcoin, you know, check out the canon, read blog posts, like you know, just anything you would want to do on Swan. Link in the show notes, go to swanbitcoin.com slash guy. And then lastly, because we all still have to use fiat, the only smart way to use fiat is to get paid sats to do so, which is the fold card. The fold debit card gives you sats back on every single thing that you purchase with fiat. It is my main bank account slash card, whatever you want to call it, and it feels like cheating. It is an excellent way to stack a little bit of extra Bitcoin without actually doing anything different. You're just using a different card, but it's all the same stuff. It's your bills, it's your phone bill, it's your you know, going out to eat, your gas, your Uber rides, Amazon, all of it. You're just getting sats back. Plus, they give you 5,000 sats just for making an account. Go to guyswan.com slash fold. With that, let's get into today's read. Again, this one's from Bitcoin Magazine, and it's titled, Debunking the ESG Attack on Bitcoin, by Spencer Nichols. 
those who decry Bitcoin's use of energy fail to acknowledge that all things in life require energy, and there is no such thing as a free lunch. A PhD pamphlet of this article is available for download. Quote, The utility of the exchanges made possible by Bitcoin will far exceed the cost of electricity used. Not having Bitcoin would be the net waste. Satoshi Nakamoto No free lunch Those who decry Bitcoin's use of energy fail to acknowledge a simple reality, that all things in life require energy, and there is no such thing as free lunch. Much mainstream debate has been waged on, quote, concerns around Bitcoin's use of energy. Yet a significant portion of that conversation has been muddied by deep-seated myopia on the part of legacy financial interests, a type of willful blindness toward recognizing the necessity of decentralized energy money in comparison to the compromised fiat financial system of today. The fact is, any economic engine is only as good as the energy which sustains it. For a network to maintain its structure and persist, Despite the entropy of the universe, energy must flow, and monetary networks are no exception. Ever since government-issued fiat currency severed the link between energy and monetary creation, the currencies of the world have been steadily marching to their graves. The Importance of Decentralization The fiat system is a prime example of centralized stakeholder capitalism run amok whereby those with the greatest network equity have captured the governance of the monetary protocol, unilaterally manipulating the rules of the game to suit their self-interests. Easy money zombie companies abound, feeding on the capital redistributed to them from society via inflationary monetary policy. The modern financial system has been co-opted by the most well-capitalized network participants at the cost of all the others namely those lacking asset ownership and access to cheap debt. The centralized control of fiat presents both a single point of failure as well as a single point of control for those with the stake, granting them nearly unimpeachable access and the ability to benefit from printing money. For any monetary protocol to avoid this fate, it must be sufficiently decentralized and resilient to coercion. Gold, Nature's Proof of Work Throughout much of human history, gold served as such a sufficiently decentralized monetary protocol, where the underlying rules of the gold standard were impossible to manipulate due to the fact that no individual could create physical gold without expending the necessary energy required to generate new supply. Thus, gold had verifiable scarcity and did not carry any counterparty risk due to the very laws of physics that governed the natural world. These two aspects were highly desirable for money, and were only possible in that nature does not permit gold to simply be printed out of thin air, nor can it be in two places at once, preventing the occurrence of forgery and double spending within the network. In this way, nature served as an incorruptible arbiter of the gold standard, ensuring unforgeable costliness in the production of new money. 
network participants necessarily had to shoulder unavoidable costs to obtain gold, thus ensuring an apolitical money backed by nature. Gold's Shortcomings Although gold's connection to the thermodynamic reality granted its scarcity, from a technological perspective, it failed to keep pace with the needs of a rapidly scaling international global economy. Prohibitive weight, inadequate divisibility, cost-inefficient verifiability, and the risk inherent to transporting physical gold around the world to settle payments all contributed to its shortcomings. To solve these scaling problems, namely related to transaction costs, governments created gold-convertible paper notes to facilitate capital flows, thus making claims on gold more saleable across space. However, because economic actors place their gold with centralized custodial banks to increase its saleability, the economy necessarily evolved to operate on a system of credit issued against that gold, whereby depositors accepted counterparty risk for the benefit of using paper currency. This effectively increased gold's frequency of final settlement at the cost of incorporating trusted third-party intermediaries into the architecture of the monetary system. This system of paper credit was ultimately backed by the balance sheets of central banks that issued these gold convertible certificates. This meant that the ability of depositors to convert their certificates into the underlying commodity, gold, was reliant upon the favor of central banks, reflecting the permissioned and inherently political nature of the fiat system. Promises from central banks, it turns out, are worth their weight in gold. Because of gold's physical manifestation, it required centralizing solutions that were vulnerable to regulatory capture. In a way, the fact that gold exists in physical reality at all led to it being gamed by those with superior physically coercive capacities. During World War I, the conflicting nations were able to suspend gold's convertibility, funding warfare through the ability to print fiat currency. As well, governments were able to outright ban private ownership of gold, while unilaterally imposing capital controls in order to fund warfare, among other government programs. At the conclusion of the gold standard and the Bretton Woods system, the United States had issued dollar liabilities far in excess of its gold reserves on deposit. In 1971, when too many creditors came calling, namely France and the United Kingdom, U.S. President Nixon officially closed the gold window by disallowing gold's convertibility, bringing the world onto a fiat standard. Why Fiat Fails the necessary and seemingly foregone outcome of government-monopolized money has delivered some particularly nasty unintended consequences. Those able to issue new currency gained the ability to paper over their bad debts, enriching themselves by socializing their losses at the expense of the broader economy. Traditionally, this regulatory capture benefited governments and entities benefiting from government-granted monopolies, allowing them to accumulate greater and greater stake in the U.S. dollar network. As well, the United States, as the issuer of the world reserve currency, maintains the ability to impose seniorage 
whereas the rest of the world operating on the U.S. dollar standard does not have this so-called exorbitant privilege. Government-monopolized money has consistently generated unsustainable government debt, as those with access to the printing press maintain the ability to inflate their obligations away. To debase is in fact an obligation of a state in competition for power with other states, and would otherwise render losers those unable to debase their currency during times of emergency or war. As the process of ever-increasing government debt and compounding interest accumulation reduces growth, even more debasement is required to further kick the can down the road. All the while, unsound debts are increasingly papered over and forgiven. As a higher and higher proportion of unproductive capital circulates within the financial system, productivity falls and requires even more credit expansion for the system to function in a pernicious inflationary spiral. Fiat currency, which emerged as an expedient yet centralized way to solve gold's technological shortcomings, metastasized into an unsustainable, systematic destruction of capital, its lifetime limited by the degree to which the state can coerce its citizens to participate in an inherently one-sided economic game. Energy is the key to decentralization. Bitcoin's proof of work is the only way to achieve immutable decentralized consensus for digital money, a domain characterized by adversarial game-theoretic conditions, the famous Byzantine general's problem that Satoshi set out to solve. Proof of work incontrovertibly requires energy to be expended to mine new coins, and energy carries a necessary, real-world physical cost. This imposition of unforgeable costliness, credit to Nick Zabo, bonds digital money creation to energy expenditure, introducing the first law of thermodynamics into the architecture of a digital monetary system. Energy expenditure serves as the necessary check and balance in the process of decentralized monetary consensus and cannot be replaced. Energy's inability to be forged by any known means minimizes the trust that individuals must place in one another, allowing immutable code to serve as law in the adversarial game that is money. Porting unforgeable energy into the digital realm enabled the creation of the first absolutely scarce monetary good, granting humanity the capacity to provably value its collective future free from the monetary debasement implicit of captured, self-destructing, debt-based fiat currencies. Bitcoin's use of energy now supports anyone, anywhere, to store value free from the yoke of central banking time theft, powering a monetary system no longer predicated upon harvesting future productive capital to sustain itself. The beauty of Bitcoin's proof of work is that the opinions of those who would wish to harm it bear no impact on the network's truthful and uncensorable depiction of the ledger. The Bitcoin network's energy-enabled decentralization guarantees it will continue to thrive, and we will all be better for it. Misinformation number one. 
the World Economic Forum. Bitcoin alone could help push global warming above 2 degrees Celsius. Response This claim is perhaps the most egregious and often cited misleading piece of FUD bandied about by the media. The World Economic Forum, the WEF, is infamous for its disdain for Bitcoin, and perhaps this makes sense given its close ties to central bankers and the cantillionaires who benefit from the control of the monetary system. Politics aside, the WEF and its acolytes would be well served to take a closer look at the, quote, science they purport as truth, when, as even a cursory glance at their cited material, Nature Climate Change, suggests their claim has no basis in reality. The WEF continues to cite a barely two-page comment published in the aforementioned journal by Mora et al., 2018. This comment has since been debunked three separate times in the very journal in which it was published, a much better reflection of the science at hand. These readily visible responses appear directly above the material cited by WEF, yet coincidentally find no mention of those with concerns about Bitcoin's energy use. A curious case of selective blindness, perhaps. The Mora comment, as well as being completely unrepresentative of reality, was written by a group of undergraduate students as an exercise to understand the academic publishing process. This level of academic inquiry should have no place in the public discourse and suggests that those with an axe to grind against Bitcoin don't necessarily care to follow the science. If they did, they might have actually read responses like, quote, implausible projections overestimate near-term Bitcoin CO2 emissions, Massanet et al. in 2019, which roundly debunks the model used by Mora and makes clear the many orders of magnitude by which Mora's erroneous assumptions miss the mark. Two degrees Celsius. To claim outright that Bitcoin alone which is responsible for only 0.085% or 8.65 ten thousandths of the global carbon emissions, could be solely responsible for two degrees of warming, is patently ridiculous, mathematically illiterate, and borderline misanthropic. More ridiculous yet is the idea that the WEF is approaching Bitcoin with even a modicum of objectivity when they clearly have no interest in contrary evidence presented in direct opposition to their narrative within the very journal they purport as, quote, the science. As the WEF continues to make this false assertion, know that it is not done out of concern for the climate, nor is it tied to an objective assessment of reality. Rather, it is done out of concern that those who previously controlled the global monetary order recognize this and are using all means available to maintain control, with public disinformation being a key attack vector. Misinformation number two. Greenpeace. Change the code, not the climate. A software code change would reduce Bitcoin's energy use by 99.9%. Switching to a low-energy protocol has proven effective and uses a fraction of the energy. Ethereum is changing its code. Many others use less energy. Why isn't Bitcoin? Response In a recent Greenpeace campaign sponsored by billionaire Chris Larson, co-founder of Ripple Labs, the company behind the centralized cryptocurrency XRP, the environmental nonprofit has gone on the offensive against Bitcoin. 
alleging its energy use could be virtually eliminated with one simple change. Never mind their laughable citation of Mora et al. 2018, or the fact that Ripple is trying to position its proven it centralized cryptocurrency as a low-energy, quote, sustainable alternative to Bitcoin's proof-of-work. Instead, let's focus on Greenpeace's malinformed perspective that Bitcoin can simply switch to a different consensus mechanism and voila, problem solved. Greenpeace and Larson claim that, quote, many newer cryptocurrencies are low consumers of energy or carbon neutral because they use a better model, proof of stake. Fallaciously equating proof of stake and proof of work in terms of their security attributes. This dishonestly implies that Bitcoin's imposed energy demands are unnecessary and inherently wasteful when, quote, better systems exist. Fundamentally, proof-of-stake consensus is a self-centralizing security model and thus cannot serve as an alternative to proof-of-work in a domain as adversarial as money. Stake-based systems forego the need for energy expenditure to establish the state of the network and instead delegate validation as a responsibility of the network's largest stakeholders. Over time, this means that as those with more stake increase their network equity through block validation, they recursively solidify their control over the network. Simply, the network participants with the most stake dictate the state of the network, and this inherently introduces counterparty risk into the system. This is essentially the same security model the fiat system operates upon, where the largest participants can undermine the monetary system due to their wealth, and typical network participants must accept the counterparty risk inherent in holding any money that does not effectively minimize trust. This is nowhere even close to the realization of apolitical money that Bitcoin set out to achieve, and in no sense provides a substitute for proof-of-work despite the opinions of Chris Larson and Greenpeace on the matter. Bitcoin, by requiring proven energy expenditure, imposes unforgeable costliness onto the network participants, such that miners are incentivized to accurately record the state of the ledger, while being incentivized to respect the rules of the protocol. Trust minimization between network participants is an irreplaceable quality of decentralized money and energy is an incontrovertibly necessary ingredient to achieve that aim. Misinformation number three, The New Yorker. Why Bitcoin is bad for the environment. A single Bitcoin transaction uses the same amount of power that the average American household consumes in a month, and is responsible for roughly a million times more carbon emissions than a single Visa transaction. Response. Comparing the Visa network, a permissioned higher-layer protocol facilitating credit transactions atop the fiat system, to Bitcoin, a permissionless base-layer money achieving irreversible final settlement, is like saying that an IOU and cash-in-hand offer the same settlement assurance. Bitcoin's trust minimization is not remotely equivalent to Visa, highlighting a critical lack of understanding of what Bitcoin was designed to accomplish. Inequivalence aside, the quantity of transactions in a Bitcoin block has no bearing on the energy intensity of that block. Mining not only secures newly submitted blocks, but secures all previously mined blocks that came before. Bitcoin's use of energy, 
rather than processing individual transactions, goes toward making the Bitcoin ledger increasingly immutable with each additional hash. Nearly the same amount of energy would be required for a given block, even if zero transactions were contained within it. This misattribution of energy expenditure also fails to account for higher-layer protocols like the Lightning Network, which can bundle many transactions into a single on-chain entry, massively reducing the meaningless expected energy per transaction cited by the New Yorker. Currently, the vast majority of miner revenue is not even derived from transactions, as transaction fees account for only 2% of the reward granted to miners. In the interest of valid comparisons, it is important to highlight the relationship between the fiat monetary system and its energy use. Shortly after the fall of the gold standard, 1974 saw the birth of the petrodollar system via an alliance between the United States and Saudi Arabia. The U.S. military-industrial complex would provide military security for Saudi Arabia, and in exchange, the oil-producing nation agreed to transact oil solely in dollars. These petrodollars held in reserve would then be, quote, recycled into U.S. treasuries, thereby establishing consistent demand for U.S. government debt. While Bitcoin does not litigate the ethics of hydrocarbon production, it is not controversial to point out that the dollar, in that it is sustained by the continuation of the U.S. military-industrial complex, the single largest consumer of oil in the world, carries an incomparably greater carbon footprint than the Bitcoin network will ever begin to approach. All this while generating abhorrent negative externalities, among which are the countless lives lost to conflict and the inherently political nature of money controlled by a singular geopolitical hegemon. Misinformation number four. NRDC. Quote, in comparison with more traditional online banking, a single Bitcoin has the same carbon footprint as 330,000 credit card transactions. Given the world's exceedingly tight timeline to reach net zero emissions and avoid a climate catastrophe, the Bitcoin boom poses a big problem. Response Again, more unfounded, uncontextualized fear-mongering coupled with an invalid comparison of Bitcoin, a network for trustless final settlement and peer-to-peer -peer value exchange, with credit transactions facilitated by intermediaries atop the fiat system. According to the Bitcoin Mining Council, an industry organization accounting for more than half of the global hash rate, the Bitcoin network accounts for only 0.15% of global energy use and 0.086% of global CO2 emissions, an indisputably insignificant energy demand profile. The fact is, other monetary networks are incredibly carbon-intensive in comparison. Real estate, which carries a monetary premium far above its use value, accounts for 40% of global emissions and drives significant social externalities, including exacerbating the global cost-of-living crisis and problems. While it is true that Bitcoin does use energy, and that this energy load carries resultant emissions, a closer look at the kind and quality of energy being used is warranted. Globally, the Bitcoin network uses 59.5% renewable energy, a higher proportion than any other industrial process, let alone a higher proportion than any country in the world. Given these facts, short-sighted alarmist concern trolling by the NRDC 
serves no practical purpose in the discourse around climate change, given Bitcoin has a decidedly undersized climate impact relative to its already inconsequential energy demands. The, quote, boom in Bitcoin mining poses less of a so-called climate, quote, problem than virtually any industry. Contrary to the NRDC's framework, Bitcoin is helping to drive the acceleration of renewable energy solutions. Misinformation number five, The Guardian. Let's pause right here for a public service announcement about the cold card. Understand, everyone, you don't have to put the cold card in your freezer for it to work. When we say cold storage, we mean it's secure. It's not actually a temperature. When we say air-gapped, we don't mean that you've shut it away in the freezer so that it can't breathe. We mean that by default, the device doesn't get plugged directly into the internet. It's not on an internet-connected device. Again, it is a security term. So you don't, you don't have to put the cold card in the freezer. I mean, unless that's you know, where you hide your Bitcoin keys, I guess. But it doesn't make it more secure. It's not better in the freezer. It's just already secure. So if you too want to hold your Bitcoin keys, you want to be self-sovereign, but not necessarily in your freezer, maybe in your safe or your desk or, or your pocket, wherever, check out the cold card. The cold card Mark IV is a secure and versatile Bitcoin hardware signing device that will keep your keys safe and ensure that they are never exposed to hackers and malicious apps and anything else that's trying to steal your Bitcoin on the internet or your phone or your computer or wherever it is. Keep it separate. Keep it safe. Keep it on a cold card. Again, not a temperature, a security term. Get 5% off with code Bitcoin Audible. That's the name of the show. How nice of them to make it so easy to remember so that you can fit more of these amazing Bitcoin learnings into your brain from the Bitcoin Audible show. Go to guyswan.com slash cold card. Link is right there in the show notes. All right, let's jump back in. Misinformation number five. The Guardian. Quote, Texas has a problem, too. After China's crackdown on Bitcoin mining, many miners moved to Texas, where the electrical grid is deregulated. Environmental groups say the extra pressure on Texas's grid could cause more blackouts of the sort that happened in February, when households were plunged into dark and freezing circumstances. Response As noted by The Guardian, Texas has had difficulties with its energy grid stemming from the inability to deliver enough energy when demand is high and incorrectly suggests that Bitcoin miners could cause future blackouts, while the polar opposite is closer to the truth. Many of the problems facing the Texas grid are due to the high proportion of renewable energy it has integrated, often resulting in a large mismatch between when renewable energy is generated, when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining, and when demand for that energy materializes. This problem of intermittency has led to highly volatile energy prices, a problem for energy producers and consumers alike. Surprisingly, proof-of-work presents an opportunity to mitigate both of these undesirable outcomes and can help stabilize energy markets in times of critical need. Bitcoin miners are highly mobile and continually seek out the cheapest energy inputs irrespective of geography. 
This type of uniquely geographically flexible and monetizable energy demand offers a critical avenue for renewable energy financing, unlocking previously unavailable financing options. With Proof-of-Work's energy profile, negatively priced renewable energy that would have otherwise gone to waste can find a revenue-positive use while securing the Bitcoin network. Additionally, Bitcoin miners can be of service to grid operators when prices rise too high, providing demand-response functionality, reducing or eliminating energy load, and freeing up additional energy in times of critical need. Demand response can coincidentally help reduce the need for natural gas and coal-fired peaker plants, a carbon-intensive and costly component of the grid normally engaged during periods of peak demand. This type of market-enabled flexible baseload demand can help drive energy security and infrastructure resilience while reducing carbon emissions in the process. This capability has even been noted by the CEO of the largest grid operator in Texas, ERCOT, who called Bitcoin mining a great opportunity for the grid. Categorically, there is no alternative industrial process in the world than Bitcoin's use of proof-of-work capable of fulfilling such an important niche. It can even be argued that Bitcoin does not use enough energy to help stabilize the grid as quickly as would be ideal. All this considered, proof-of-work turns out to be a powerful solution for the grid, rather than the, quote, problem for Texans the Guardian might have you believe. Misinformation number six, Columbia Climate School. Bitcoin's impacts on the environment, quote, to be competitive, miners want the most efficient hardware capable of processing the most computations per unit of energy. This specialized hardware becomes obsolete every 1.5 years and can't be reprogrammed to do anything else. It's estimated that the Bitcoin network generates 11.5 kilotons of e-waste each year, adding to our already huge e-waste problem. Response. The claim that the hardware for mining Bitcoin, quote, becomes obsolete every 1.5 years, based on the study by Dutch Central Bank employee Alex de Vry, Bitcoin's growing e-waste problem, is easily dismissed if one looks at real-world Bitcoin mining data. Most Bitcoin miners are in consensus that three to five years is a reasonable expectation for the extent of a mining rig's profitable lifetime. Yet some miners may continue functioning longer depending on the operator's energy costs and tolerance for relative return on investment. For example, Antminer S9 mining rigs released in 2017 still make up a notable portion of Bitcoin's hash rate five years later. As well, Antminer S15s released in 2018 still account for a significant proportion of contribution to proof of work. Even a cursory look at the relative quantities of ASICs being used debunks the assumptions used by DeVries, and subsequently Columbia Climate School are not representative of reality and should not be taken as such. As said before, the Bitcoin network does not use energy on a per-transaction basis, Yet DeVries and those who cite him continue to rely upon this misleading metric in order to create statistics that appear critical of Bitcoin. Even so, the aforementioned quote claims that each Bitcoin transaction somehow creates an iPhone's worth of e-waste, totaling the equivalent of the small IT sector of the Netherlands, a country of 17 million people.
While this is an insignificant amount of e-waste, a mere drop in the bucket of the 53 million tons produced globally, it turns out to be massively overestimated on the assumption that 100% of the weight of each rig is indeed e-waste, rather than recyclable material or otherwise. In reality, the vast majority of the material within mining rigs comes from fans and heat sinks, with just milligrams of legitimate e-waste coming from the nanometer-thick, semiconducting ASIC chips themselves. In short, the study cited by Columbia is incredibly exaggerated, decontextualized, and even undermines the school's own premise of Bitcoin having a, quote, huge e-waste problem if taken at face value. That this unobjective attack was levied based upon work done by an acolyte of the Dutch Central Bank should not be particularly surprising. As the limited lifespan of fiat currencies comes to a close, Bitcoin has emerged to take its place in reconnecting money to energy and restoring a sound foundation to global economic exchange. Inventor, scientist, and environmentalist R. Buckminster Fuller may have put it best when he described the importance of global money once again coupled to thermodynamic reality in his book, Critical Path, in 1981. Quote, In this cosmically uniform common energy value system for all humanity, costing will be expressed in kilowatt-hours, watt-hours, and watt-seconds of work. Kilowatt-hours will become the prime criteria of costing the production of the complex of metabolic involvements per each function or item. These uniform energy valuations will replace all the world's wildly intervarying, opinion-gambled-upon, top-power system-manipulatable monetary systems. The time-energy world accounting system will do away with all the inequities now occurring in regard to the arbitrarily maneuverable banker-invented international balance of trade accounting. Prescient indeed. Unstoppable energy money is finally here, and every watt used to secure the network from centralized control of the monetary system should be celebrated. The energy FUD is barking up the wrong tree, and ironically happens to have found the sustainable monetary system they were looking for all along. All right, that wraps up Spencer's piece from Bitcoin Magazine, uh, debunking the ESG attacks on Bitcoin. So I wanted to hit this piece because it really just kind of demolishes some of the main things that you hear over and over and over again. It's, it's kind of remarkable how, how persistent something that is blatantly untrue is if it sounds good, particularly if it sounds good in support of the agenda of the day. And that kind of leads me back to what I was saying at the beginning of this, is that so much of mainstream journalism today seems to have no filter or no even regard as to whether what they're sharing is true or not. It's almost as if it's not even part of the consideration. It's not, there's no objective thought going into these things trying to teach you something about about the thing they're sharing it's always pushing an agenda it's always trying to frame something in the support of an opinion and you know if they were actually biased if they were openly biased it wouldn't be as bad but they pontificate they act 
and, and sell themselves as if they're unbiased reporters, and they have such an absolutely transparent agenda and goal with every single thing that they do to twist a headline or the first couple of paragraphs of something to mean something so blatantly the opposite of the truth, even in articles where I have seen them and admit the truth further down, they want to make sure that the bulk of people who hear it end up supporting the agenda and getting the impression that they, that they know is false, but that they know will spread the fastest, that they know will support what they are trying to get across. And when you call that propaganda today, it's amazing the people who are still stuck in the establishment thinking act like that's a conspiracy theory because you use the word propaganda or something. Somehow there's this disconnect that even though everything so obviously pushes the political agenda, even though everything is so obviously wrong over and over again, and they never correct, they never walk back, even if even when they're absolutely proven to be wrong, they just kind of like stop talking about it. Or they change the narrative to say, no, we never meant it like this, or we never said it this way. This is not what you just misinterpreted our words. The gaslighting, the unbelievable amount of gaslighting is incredible. And the one that I have seen so many people, this one was in the climate report. The Mora et al. thing, about two degrees Celsius, about Bitcoin alone pushing the climate above two degrees Celsius, additional warming but in, in just 22 years was the explicit quote. Now, first off, this is not a scientific paper. There's a video, I'll see if I can find it, um, about someone who was really, really close to it. I can't, I can't remember who it was. But basically explaining what this was, and, and Spencer actually hits it here, um, but it says the Mora comment, as well as being completely unrepresentative of reality, was written by a group of undergraduate students as an exercise to understand the academic publishing process. I want to reiterate what he means by this. The paper was not being judged on the accuracy of the subject they were talking about. The, the actual research is completely fake. It's, it's, just, it's just kind of an exercise for the sake of having some sort of research because they were undergraduates studying the publishing process. This is not a paper, but because they have this authority, this Mora, who's a very well-respected person, they will blindly quote something that is so flatly stupid. Now, I'm, I'm trying to illustrate how unbelievably dumb this comment is. And if we take, just take the, the base assessment of 0.086% is the amount of CO2 emissions, supposedly, that the Bitcoin network accounts for. Now, this does not account for the fact that um, even, even those estimates do not account for the offsetting of greenhouse gas emissions done with methane, because natural gas is actually a far more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. So when methane or when natural gas is being used to, when, when flared natural gas is being used to mine Bitcoin, it's actually reducing its potential greenhouse gas effect because it's more cleanly burning off all of the methane, whereas the flare leaves a huge portion of it to just being, it's just being vented up into the air. But let's just go with that. Let's just, you know what, screw it. Let's call it point one, And let's, 
even though this was done in 2018, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that it starts from right now and that the last four years of this not happening even slightly is not going to be used against them, that they were just completely and utterly and totally unbelievably wrong for four years about the insanity of that claim. What does it mean to suggest that amount of CO2 or that amount of greenhouse gases will contribute to 2 degrees Celsius warming over 22 years in comparison to the rest of CO2 production or the rest of all industry and countries and the internet and networks and just every single thing, every, all of the energy consumption of the world? Well, for the simple math, 0.1% of the impact is easy to, it's just a simple thousand. We're just multiplying it by a thousand, right? And then we multiply that by two, because two degrees is what we're worried Bitcoin is contributing to. So let's go ahead and multiply the thousand, the impact of all of the other energy output on the world, which again, a thousand times greater than Bitcoin. Well, we have to multiply that by two degrees to get the amount of degrees that that is going to raise the temperature of the earth in that same 22 years, then we can conveniently divide this by 22 years to see how hot it's going to be next year. It's going to be 91 degrees hotter next year across the entire planet. It's going to be hot, blistering, humid summer in the Arctic. And when they say it will boil the oceans, they're not kidding. It will literally boil the oceans. That also means I don't get a winner this year because you know, the average temperature in the winter and the summer isn't even that huge of a gap, and it's going to basically be about 20 degrees hotter by the time we get into the middle of winter from right now. I guess, I guess there goes my wish for a white Christmas. Now, what is so crazy about this is I've, I've even heard people who are against Bitcoin, who, who hold the bias of these same institutions defend this. That, oh, well, it's an exaggeration. No, no, no. That's not an exaggeration. Even what Spencer quoted, which was the, the, same, the same publication later showed responses, like published responses, showing that this paper was absurd. They, the quote was, implausible projections overestimate near-term Bitcoin CO2 emissions. That is still so out of the scope of what we are talking about. And I cannot believe that people are even trying to appease this. That they're not flat out saying, this is stupid. This is blindly and absolutely retarded. It doesn't even fart into a wind that goes near the truth anywhere. It's almost incredible how wrong it is. Um, I mean, it is... It, Spencer says it's patently ridiculous, it's mathematically illiterate, and borderline misanthropic. And I'm supposed to have some sort of reverence or respect for the WEF or for the journalists that repeat this? Man. Like this is what this is what they're referring to. You know, when they're making statements about COVID or about, you know, vaccination or the data that Pfizer has and all of this stuff. How am I supposed to take them seriously? 
In what way do they think they have earned me believing anything that they say when they can say something so absurd as this and call it the science? Anyway, I've just, uh, we've beat the hell out of that one. It just, I cannot believe that that one survives. The sheer capacity of thoughtlessness is remarkable to me on that one. But there's a really great section in this just in comparison to gold. And what's funny is Spencer gets into one, uh, in that section, he basically hits such a great argument, such a succinct argument on why gold failed, why gold is in the situation that it is now, and why sound money is not possible by going back to a gold standard. It does a really good job of hitting the fundamental problem with gold in the modern age. So I want to hit this quote real quick. It says, Although gold's connection to thermodynamic reality granted its scarcity, from a technological perspective, it failed to keep pace with the needs of a rapidly scaling international global economy. Prohibitive weight, inadequate divisibility, cost-ineffective cost verifiability, and the risk inherent to transporting physical gold around the world to settle payments all contributed to its shortcomings. To solve these scaling problems, namely related to transaction costs, governments created gold-convertible paper notes to facilitate capital flows, thus making claims on gold more saleable across space. However, because economic actors place their gold with centralized custodial banks to increase its saleability, however, because economic actors placed their gold with centralized custodial banks to increase its saleability, the economy necessarily evolved to operate on a system of credit issued against that gold, whereby depositors accepted counterparty risk for the benefit of using paper currency. This effectively increased gold's frequency of final settlement at the cost of incorporating trusted third-party intermediaries into the architecture of the monetary system. This is why gold cannot be used as a sound money again. It can't be used to fix the current system we have. It would be like trying to go back to the rye stones on the island of Yap after we realized that the English can create more of it for vastly lower cost than the Yappies could. You can't go backward when a money proves itself to have a critical failure for the new technological environment. And that's the issue with gold. Gold, yes, physical gold, is still sound money. But it's not money for our economy because our economy can't use a physical good as the dominant money. It must use gold substitutes. It must use a gold certificate, which means you have counterparty risk, which means it's a liability, which means it is not money. It's credit. And the whole problem that we have is the endless, unbacked creation of credit. That is the very problem that we are having, is the fact that our monetary base, the currency we use, is a credit, is a liability, has counterparty risk. That's, it defeats the entire purpose of money. That's why it has such a short lifespan, because it inevitably succumbs to the corruption of the masters, of the people whose credit it belongs to. Because who doesn't want to issue something Im immensely valuable for free that people have that people treat as if it's value in and of itself the reason we lost sound money isn't because you know we went off a gold standard it was inevitable that we went off a gold standard 
because we don't have a digital way to prove the scarcity of something. That is what was missing, is that we had to have a digital economy. We had to have a substitute economy that existed in the virtual and digital realm in order to scale the economic engine to the size that we have it, to scale the economic network. But we didn't have a digital money. All we could use that, was, that could serve as a monetary good in the digital world was somebody's credit, somebody's promise. It literally wasn't until 2009 with the creation of Bitcoin that that was, up until then, that was, that was the reality. There just was no other option. There was no such thing as a digital money. We lost unsound money because our economy takes place in a world in which sound money wasn't possible. Or at least it didn't seem to be, until Satoshi and 2009 and the creation of Bitcoin, of course. But I could go on about this. I know I've talked about this on the show a lot, like the ESG stuff in general, but um, also the gold stuff. In fact, I, I might do a, a refresh episode on a couple of things that I think are really good on that topic. But uh, I got to go. I got something else scheduled, and I want to go ahead and get this episode out. So we'll just cut our guys' take a little short. I won't be able to cover all my notes. Sorry about that. But we will be back tomorrow for another episode, and I'm going to hold a ween in Charlotte tomorrow night. Um, I'm excited. I hope you guys, anybody else, anybody's going to be joining me, um, let me know. Send me a DM or something. I'll try to hit you up, and we'll hang out in Charlotte. And thank you to CoinKite, to Fold and the Fold Card and to Swan Bitcoin for supporting this show, as well as the amazing Audionauts for sharing this crazy journey with me. This is Bitcoin Audible, and until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. One of the saddest lessons of history is this. If we've been bamboozled long enough, we tend to reject any evidence of the bamboozle. We're no longer interested in finding out the truth. The bamboozle has captured us. It's simply too painful to acknowledge, even to ourselves, that we've been taken. Once you give a charlatan power over you, you almost never get it back. Carl Sagan This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.